Patterson. This is a key. He's been the hottest Canucks in terms of getting points. And he goes right around one of the better defenders for Vegas and Shea Theater. Vancouver power play. Patterson with the puck. A look at their numbers on the man advantage. It wins and losses. Horvath scores! 2-0 Vancouver! Paul Horvath has no points in the last five games. Pedersen, who's been electrifying offensively, good composure with the puck, down to Toffoli, Toffoli out front, and is Tyler Toffoli making an impact here in game two? A beautiful seeing-eye pass to Horvath through a maze of sticks, and Horvath just elevates that puck. Canucks control the faceoff with a 2-1 to -one lead. Here's Pedersen in front, beautiful movie scores! Hey, welcome to Tape to Tape, powered by Ram Motor Trend's back-to-back -back winner of Truck of the Year. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer for Sportsnet.ca. Joining me on the other line, as always, Sportsnet's NHL editor, Rory Boylan. Some great playoff games so far. I, I, you know, I, sometimes that second round, that third round kind of dips a little bit in normal year, but I think we're all just hungry for hockey this point, yeah. and we're getting some awesome, awesome games so far, some pushback from the Lightning some pushback from the Vancouver Canucks that we'll get to here shortly that I did not expect and see coming. Um, and you know what? I even have to admit, I kind of like watching the New York Islanders play. Oh, crazy. Uh, I, I was <laughs> asked, uh, our uh, beloved uh, one-time tape-to-tape producer, Sam McKee, I don't know if he's just being a bitter Leafs fan, but he was like, I'd rather have a team that loses in the first round than makes it to the second <laughs> round and, and plays boring hockey. And I was like, well, you know what? New Jersey Devils fans are not giving back those Stanley Cup rings. So no. I'm sure the Islanders fans are smiling. We're going to get to them on a future pod for sure. We have to talk some Islanders. Maybe we'll bring in Justin Bourne so he can deep dive on that. Today, though, it's Ian McIntyre. He's going to be talking about the Vancouver Canucks. And as you mentioned, Roy, uh, a great showing from the Canucks on Tuesday night in Game 2 versus Vegas. We're also going to put a bow on the seasons for the Canadians and Calgary Flames. We haven't had a chance to do that since they got bounced. So we got a trade to talk about. I almost said Sammy Kapanen. Kasperi Kapanen going back to the team that drafted him. The Pittsburgh Penguins and the Leafs already uh, winning some... Uh, some fans or making their fans at least uh, come out of the darkness a little bit with, uh, with what most are viewing as a strong move there. But forget all that. Please be joined now by Sportsnet's Ian McIntyre. He, of course, covers the Vancouver Canucks. Ian, if there was any doubt the Canucks had bitten off a little more than they could chew after game one when they got whipped by Vegas, it really seems like they answered it with uh, a solid win and really pushing back on several fronts in game two. Yeah, yeah, they, they had to respond. Otherwise, it, it looked like the series might be over in three games, the way it opened for Vegas. Uh, the Knights are so dominant, uh, so strong. Their five-on-five -five game is as good as anybody's. And the Canucks uh, had a crash, you know, after beating St. Louis. They, even though you can tell yourself, well, it's two days later, next next team up. But the fact is they accomplished something that, not many people thought they would do in knocking off the Stanley Cup champions and they they mentally just were not there in game one so it was vitally important in game two that they show that this is going to be a fight uh, you know I love one of the things that Travis Green said halfway through that St. Louis series when the Blues had come back from an 0-2 deficit it looked like they had seized control of the series and it was going to be very difficult for the Canucks and, and Travis Green said he loved where his team was he loved that they were standing in toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Stanley Cup champions and had turned it into a best of three. 
I'm not sure that Canucks or many teams can stand toe to toe with the Vegas Golden Knights, but the Canucks at least got themselves into the fight in game two. They showed that they're not going to uh, go willingly uh, from these playoffs and they've turned it into a best of five and trying to beat Vegas three times in five games is still a huge ask for this team, but it's a little less daunting than best of seven. So we'll see what happens in game three, but certainly the Canucks look like they're making a series of this. One of the storylines Ian out of game one was how well Vegas was able to shut down and stay on top of Quinn Hughes. So important uh, he is to Vancouver's blue line. So I'm just curious, how did the Canucks and, and Travis Green even respond to that in game two? How did Quinn Hughes respond to that? And what do you think that means to this series going forward from here? Well, the Canucks need Hughes. He, he's uh, the best defenseman they've ever had. I know that always sounds ridiculous every time <laughs> it comes out of my mouth because he's played one, one season plus five games. But he, he is that good, he, and, and somebody that good is always going to make a difference for his, for his team. So they're going to need Quinn Hughes. He was a little bit better in game two. Uh, a bunch of guys were a lot better. Uh, Elias Pettersson was a lot better. Jacob Markstrom was a lot better. Uh, most of the team was better in game two. Quinn Hughes was a little bit better. His ice time was still under 18 minutes, which... I think reflects uh, reflects a couple of things. It reflects that the Canucks um, won wire to wire, uh, so they weren't chasing goals and they weren't chasing the game. But it also reflects that that Hughes has still got to kind of find his way here against the Golden Knights, who are a different animal than what the Blues were. Uh, I think he'll be fine because he's the kind of player who he has such an incredible hockey IQ to go with all that skill that we see. He's always uh, figured out each challenge that's come his way, and I think he'll figure out the challenge here. But it is it is tough for him. Vegas is taking away his space on the power play. They're overplaying the point. They're not letting Hughes go side to side, uh, either with the puck or with a pass. And it's a challenge for him. He's he's 20 years old. He's never seen anything like this. I, I think he's going to figure it out, but the Canucks still need uh, him to be a little better than what he has been if they have any chance at all to win this series. I'm going to read a tweet from our Sportsnet pal, Nick Alberga. He said, can't help but notice a lot of Jonathan Taves qualities in Bo Horvat. What can you say about the Canucks captain in the playoffs leading goal scorer? Uh, leading by example, leading from the front. And I, and I like... I like the comparison as well because Horvat is kind of that way. His, his game, his defensive game isn't quite yet where Taves was in his prime, but he's getting there and, and he's close to that. He's just a guy who goes out, leads by example. He's probably a better quote than Jonathan Taves <laughs> after the game. Taves wasn't quite as bad as Joe Sackett. Um, as for a quote, but sure, I smell a list for Dutsy. Yeah, yeah, he, ne- he, ne- he never he never did fill your notebook. Um, he's gotten better. Uh, Taves has later on in his career, more more uh, talkative. But uh, you know, Horvat, he's he's the kind of player who makes uh, his team go. And another comparison that I like, even though they're very different players, but people on the West Coast would certainly understand uh, the context. Is, is he's a bit like Ryan Kessler in that 
when the Canucks had their best era uh, as a franchise in 50 years. That was the Henrik Sedin's, Daniel Sedin, Ryan Kessler team, Roberto Luongo. Uh, won a bunch of, I think it was six straight division titles. They went to the Cup in 2011. Well, Henrik Sedin won a scoring title and and was an MVP in the National Hockey League. And yet playing behind him was Ryan Kessler. And on a lot of nights, Ryan Kessler actually kind of drove the energy, drove the team. And Bo Horvat does that now for the Canucks. Very different guy, very different player than Kessler, although there are similarities in their play as well. Um, but he, playing behind Elias Pettersson, theoretically, he's still the guy who drives the team uh, on a lot of nights. And it doesn't mean that Pettersson isn't. It's just there's such a dynamic to Horvat as there was to Kessler, as there was to Taves, that they're able to do that. So let's talk about Elias Pettersson. I, I love watching him play. And Elias. 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 Yes, I always get that mixed up. Yeah, you um, know what? I get it wrong as well. <laughs> he is actually, it's not Elias, but that's the best that I can do. It's Elias or Elias. something like that. Elias Pettersson. But it's, but it's not Elias. <laughs> um, so he, he, according to Sportsnet stats, um, has now the most playoff points in Canucks history through his first 12 games with 16 through 12 games. Just uh, incredible. Three points there in game two. But I want to ask you this question in a way that isn't just going to describe his game two. You know, there were questions around him. This is his first playoff appearance. Playoff hockey brings... It's tougher. It, there's less ice. So how would a guy with a slight frame like Pedersen adapt to that? And so far, it's been great. So the question I kind of want to pose here is if you were, after seeing his playoff performance now, if you were building a team from scratch in the NHL, how many players are you picking before you end up going with Pedersen? Well, not, not very many. <laughs> no. Not very many. I mean, you, you're talking about Connor McDavid and, and Nathan McKinnon. And then there's uh, a pool of players and Pedersen is in the, that next pool. That's, that's how good he is. Um, it is remarkable what he's doing. Uh, and I said last night on, on Vancouver radio, the, the, the most remarkable aspect about this is from the time Pedersen arrived, he has had to be the go-to guy because the Canucks were that poor. I mean, remember Pedersen's first season two years ago, when, when he uh, won the Calder Trophy, that was before Quinn Hughes. That was before J.T. Miller. The Canucks were just, had just come out of their nadir. And Pedersen was the guy that other teams focused on pretty well since his first game. His, his first NHL game, he scored that great goal in a two-on-one on Calgary. And almost since then, he's been the guy that every night the other team is, is trying to stop. And that's... That's different than the other great players that Vancouver had. The, the Sedins, they kind of tiptoed into the playoffs. When, when they started playing the playoffs in 01, the Canucks still had the West Coast Express. You know, all the pressure was on Naslin and Bertuzzi and Morrison and Ed Jovanovsky. And the Sedins could kind of find their way and didn't mean they, they didn't take criticism when they didn't score, but they didn't have to score for the Canucks to win. It was the same thing with Pavel Burry, as great as he was. That team uh, already had Trevor Linden and, and Jeff Cortnell and Greg Adams. They had established players who did the score. Now, Burry scored right away as well and became a focal point of the opposition right away as well. But 
there wasn't this singular need for him to produce offense the way there was when Pedersen started. And to some extent, it's it's still that way. I mean, the, the Canucks are a much better team now, obviously, than they were a couple of years ago. But Pedersen is still their best offensive player. He's still the guy that the other team is trying to shut down every night. And so with that, him still scoring at this historic clip, that's what's the most remarkable thing to me. So... Vancouver's got three, I think, really notable UFAs um, that they're going to have to figure out this offseason. And we saw like what makes each of them valuable last night. Tyler Toffoli, a goal and two assists. Chris Tanev, just shy of 20 minutes, six block shots, just a leader on defense. And Jacob Markstrom, you know, the team MVP was awesome, especially in that uh, second period when Vegas was really coming at them. Can you rank the order of importance on, I think I know who your number one is going to be, but like, what's the order of importance of signing those three guys? And do you think it's possible to get all three of them knowing that a year from now, you've got Pedersen and Hughes sitting there, they're going to need big extensions themselves? It'll be really hard to get all three. And the order is fairly uh, obvious. This is no great insight by me, but Jacob Markstrom, who I'm sure was number one on your list, he has been their MVP. You can see what he means to them in the playoffs. So that's number one. They would really like to sign Tyler Toffoli as well because he's been a great fit for the team. The team is still getting better. He's young enough to continue uh, to be at his peak while the team gets better uh, around him. And then Tanev uh, would be the third guy just because of where what he is in the team. doesn't mean he's not important, but the reality is uh, Markstrom is vital. Uh, to Foley, they'd really like, and and Tanev, they would like to sign as well. Now, flat cap, it's tough for everybody this summer. Um, some of this would depend on on Chris Tanev, and he kind of ran into trouble when he told me a few months ago that he could see a lot of UFAs taking a one-year deal, and then almost a UFA bridge deal, and then seeing what the market looks like next year. I don't think his agent was too keen on that. And people, people implied from that that, oh, he's going to take a one-year deal. He's going to you know, do something nice for the Canucks to allow them to keep him. That's not what he was saying. He was just being very pragmatic about the landscape for UFAs this summer, just as he's a very pragmatic, sensible player on the ice. And so uh, I, think it, I think it will be tough. Um, Tanev, of course, can he can do maybe a one-year deal, and obviously it's much more likely the Canucks can sign him then than if he wants market value, whatever market value is going to be this summer for UFAs. If he wants market value for a four- or five-year deal, he's age 30. I think it's going to be tough. But Toffoli is a huge chip that could fall or not in front of him. You know, Tyler Toffoli, for as much as Vancouver wants to sign him, may wish to return and play in California if there's one of the three teams there that would have him. You know, he's, he's, that's kind of his home now. He's married to um, an LA woman and, and, you know, he may not want to play in Vancouver as good as the fit is. There's a lot of enticing things about the Canucks for him, a chance to play with, uh, Elias Pettersson would be near the top of that list, but he may choose to go play somewhere else. He's at the point in his life. He's won a Stanley cup. Um, he's not 
rich by NHL players, but he's made enough money that he can, he can afford to choose where it is he wants to play. So he may decide against Vancouver, then that opens possibility for Tanev. There's RFAs like uh, Bertanen and Mott and Troy Stetcher who need to be dealt with as well. But the money will flow down, and we'll see if the money actually flows past Markstrom and Toffoli. There may not be much left after that. We'll get you out with one more here, Ian. Um, this this season was all about just taking that next step for the Canucks. And I think that pretty much meant getting to the playoffs and getting some experience there. And if you won around, then then that's great. But th- I think they've even exceeded that, like gone well beyond. And And as you mentioned off the top, it's not just getting here, but how they did it. Like losing those two games to the Blues, having a 2-2 series, and then coming back and winning those two. Getting blown out by Vegas in game one and then being able to fight back and win that crucial game too. So a lot of character that we've seen from this team along with the young players just playing outstanding hockey. So Canucks fans are going to get excited here. Do you? Does this team remind you of any other team in the past? And do you... Do you see them just kind of like on a rocket ship now, a straight arrow up, or is there any reason to kind of step back and say, next year, what, like what are reasonable expectations for this team next year, regardless of how they go out or even if they go the rest of the way this season? Yeah, well, the problem is that that rocket ride is rarely just straight. You know, mm-hmm. uh, improvement isn't always linear. In fact, it's rarely uh, just even. But it certainly does look like a team that's going to continue uh, to get better. It's a team unlike any uh, the Canucks have had because of how poor they were and how uh, how exhaustively they had to actually rebuild the team. And so it's not like when the Sedins came along and joined the West Coast Express team or when Bury uh, came along or Linden, for that matter, uh, in in an earlier generation, uh, there's a whole bunch of guys who have arrived all at the same time. And that's very exciting for Canuck fans. The, the question is, though, as it is for everybody in the salary cap world, is, is can they keep the group together? We, we're pretty confident that they'll keep their top players together. But then what else beyond that? And all you have to do is, is look at the team that plays in this city where I am to know that just having a couple of great players isn't nearly enough. You actually have to build the team. So the Canucks are on, on their way to building a team, but they're already, uh, with everybody else now, going to have to make hard decisions. I think, yes, uh, for sure, more will be expected next year. That's natural. I think the Canucks, although they always plan to be in the playoffs, uh, they'll have a sense when this is over that they, at the very least, they'll understand they've done better than what everybody else thought they would. Whether that means they feel they overachieved in their own mind, uh, it's questionable. But they'll, they know what people thought they were going to do this year, and nobody thought they'd be in the final eight. And nobody thought, honestly, after they got through Minnesota in the qualifying round, not many people thought they were going to beat the Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis. Blues. So there is going to be more expected. Uh, I think the team will be better, uh, even if some of the pieces who are here now are missing. The fact that that Hughes and uh, Pedersen and Besser and Horvat, and I really think that they'll find a way to re-sign Jacob Markstrom. I'm not sure about the guys after that who whose contracts drop, but I'm fairly confident they're going to sign Jacob Markstrom. 
So that alone is enough. Uh, as long as you can fill in the gaps of who leaves, the, the team is going to be better. But expectations next year the, and scrutiny and pressure, everything is going to be a lot higher than it was this year. At the start of the year, only they thought they were going to make the playoffs. Uh, now here they are. Next year, everybody not only thinks they're going to make the playoffs, but thinks they're a team that could be dangerous at playoff time. So that's a long way away. That feels <laughs> a long way away right now, I have to say. Well, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see where they go long term. We'll see where they go short term. Like you said, they're they're in the fight here. A best of five now against Vegas and Vancouver. Uh, very much there for the battle. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Nice to be on with you guys. Have a great day. All right, that is Sportsnet's Ian McIntyre joining us from Edmonton. Rory, you swooped in there and stole my final big picture question I had all laid out about the Canucks, and uh, I was going over it in my head um, because I wanted to put it in the context. We naturally group the Canadian teams together, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been thinking and saying for a while, despite, I mean, Vancouver is the only Canadian team in the second round of the playoffs. It keeps feeling like they've made the conference final because they've won two rounds, but they've gone the furthest. That doesn't mean there isn't a lot of optimism when you zoom out, broadly speaking, in other Canadian cities. You know, we all know who Edmonton has and we all know the Leafs are still loaded and we've seen the Canadians show something and the Senators are drafting third and fifth overall and whatever's going on with ownership, they've got a raft of players. Winnipeg could bounce back. But it suddenly feels like it's crystallizing as you watch the Canucks. Like, they have the generational freak talented number one. They have the heart and soul number two center. They have the guy on defense who looks like he's going to win a Norse while he's on his entry-level contract and can probably still fill out, unlike the Leafs, who do have Morgan Riley, but it looks like they might be better positioned to fill out the rest of the blue line. And if they can sign Markstrom, like if you're an optimistic Vancouver fan, and maybe there aren't a ton of those because, uh, you know, the Canucks have never won a cup in in their, you know, now 50 years of existence. But if you are uh, a West Coast optimist, you're probably putting your feet up and being like, it's kind of just a matter of time. Like there's no, un- I feel like I can go through the rest of the Canadian teams and give you a pretty hard yeah, but maybe I'm bathing myself in recency bias, but I'm just not sure what the yeah, but is other than the economic realities. Yeah, I, I think if there is a but, for the Canucks, it, it is that blue line outside of Hughes. Now, we've seen teams win a cup, Pittsburgh, without, you know, Crystal Tang was injured. They didn't have a lot of depth and they were able to get through, so it's not impossible. And Quinn Hughes, like Ian said, is probably the best defenseman Vancouver's ever had, and he's something special. So maybe you're able to fill out some of the depth behind him, but. When you look at it, you see Chris Tanev, who is so important, and he's a UFA. Maybe he's not back. Alex Edler is 34, and he's only got one year left on his contract, and he's been a rock for that team for such a long time, going back to the last time they were good. Yeah. Um, and so, like, how much does he have left in the tank? And and then after that, you're getting to, okay, Troy Stetcher, Jordy Ben, Oscar Fantenberg, like these guys aren't guys you generally want playing big minutes and big roles. So you're going to need to replace the older guys that have been so important in the last couple of years. And that's the only thing I'm stepping back and saying, okay, where is that coming from? You know, do you still probably have, hopefully, Ole Olevi coming up and he'll have some kind of 
an impact. And you've got some other prospects like Brogan Rafferty, you know, guys that are just all potential right now. And maybe they hit, but you don't know how big they're going to hit. It's, you know what you're getting in and Edler and Ten having guys like that. And where is that transition and how smooth is that transition going to be? That's the what if for me on the Canucks. But I think that's generally a, a smallish what if. I think that's something that they can figure out. But that is the little bit of a hurdle that they could have to deal with here in the next one or two years. I forgot to mention Brock Besser as well. Uh, maybe he gets lost in the mix a little bit right now, but yeah. let's not forget what that it guy does. can bring sniping on the wing. All right, let's talk about another team in round two that is quickly trying to make its way to round three. The Dallas Stars up 2 nothing on Colorado. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear this, uh, game three will be in the books. That's later today on Wednesday uh, as we record this. But man, that team has won five in a row now now i mean we always knew the issue for them was scoring goals you're seeing guys like gurianov come through the young guys i'm gonna pat myself on the back and say i always kind of thought joe pavelski would have uh his moment with this team in the playoffs regardless of what was going on in the regular season i don't know that i could say that about the top line the struggles were just um you know so well chronicled and and you know it was you were just kind of thinking maybe the jig is up for for Jamie Ben and and you know there was times where they really weren't happy with Radulov and Sagan hadn't scored in half a year, but now the top line's looking uh, pretty damn good as well. What do you make of this Dallas club that all of a sudden is getting on a roll? Well, I mean, their their strength obviously is their defense and goaltending, and we're seeing that really be successful in these playoffs between Dallas and the New York Islanders. Um, kind of similar in that way. It's just, they'll give you the outside. They don't care. Rick bonus even said it. Like if Colorado wants to take the outside, they're really good at moving around there and setting it up. They can have that all day long. It's getting to the middle that they want to make it impossible on teams. And that that's been a huge success for everybody that, that does that well in these playoffs. That top line, after game one, Radulov had two goals in it, and and Bonus was talking about them saying, you know, I know Radulov probably wanted to go out there and get that hat trick and probably wanted to push on offense, but the value to that team is they all recognize that, okay, we've got a lead. We need to be better on defense and not expose ourselves and, and, and give up on what's made us successful. And he noted that Radulov, Ben, Sagan, that line – dialed back the offense and focused more on the defense. And so, you know, these, these offensive struggles comparatively for those three to what they've done through their, through their careers to this point, it's kind of been long running. It's been two years running for a couple of them anyway. And it's not because I think they've, you know, fallen off because of age or anything like that. I think it's just the way the Dallas stars play makes it hard for them to be 80 point players or whatever. Um, and so I don't think it's I don't think you can just look at their offensive numbers and say something's wrong here. I think you can say it and see what the team is doing and say they've totally bought in to what the team wants to do. And you just pick your spots. You you play strong defense, you work it into transition, get into the offensive zone, and then cycle and then use your offense and you have that ability to all of a sudden blow up. Dallas was already just a, a really going to be a really tough out for anybody because of their defense. You were, they were, you know, a, a buy team, a round robin team because of their defense. If they're now going to be scoring, if you're going to be getting the, the offense from that top line, Joe Pavelski as well, Gary Anna, Ropa Hintz is a guy that hasn't gotten going yet, but certainly could. 
if we're now going to see them start to score a lot of goals, then my God, like, I don't know what their weakness is. Their backup goalie is in net and it's on Kudobin is probably the best backup goalie in the league. And there's no ill effects of that whatsoever. I mean, my God, what happens if Ben Bishop comes back too? Um, It's just all, they, they look like, they look like an absolute handful for Colorado and that's incredible. I mean, you couldn't really learn anything about the Avalanche in their series against Arizona because they so overmatched the Coyotes in every way. Dallas is the best measure, and Dallas has so clearly been the better team to this point um, that it's going to be really hard for the Avalanche to now overcome all of this if like, if everything is going for Dallas. There's not a weakness to be found on that team right now. All right, we've talked about the Canadian team that's still going in the playoffs. Coming up, we're going to talk about the ones that haven't made it through. Toronto's already made a trade. Everybody's screaming that Calgary and Montreal need to do the same soon. We're going to tackle that on the other side of the break. Stick around. It seemed like only a matter of time before the Maple Leafs made some kind of deal after another playoff exit. We now know that deal is moving Kasperi Kapanen back to the Pittsburgh Penguins. You know, this was the kind of move that we thought the Leafs might have done at the February trade deadline, and I don't think they could put it off any longer. What was your reaction and emotions upon uh, the news? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously you hear lots of rumors, and especially for me, it's been that way for um, quite some time. But yeah, I was just, you know, just doing my doing my thing in the morning and, uh, you know, I kind of woke up and people were saying I might get traded or I got traded and didn't know what to believe. And then Kyle called me and told me I was going to Pittsburgh. So super excited about that. Hey, welcome back to Tape to Tape. Don't forget to sign up for the Sportsnet Fantasy Hockey Pool presented by Ram. Just go to sportsnet.ca forward slash Ram. You'll find your chance to win 50,000 bucks in cash prizes or the grand prize a ram 1500 or 2500 get on their sportsnet.ca forward slash ram all right rory casperi kapanen on the move i don't think i mean if you told me you were going to get a first rounder back let alone a mid first rounder uh for that guy I would have said, well done, Mr. Dubas, but he pulled it off. He found a team that is maybe uh, acting with a little more urgency even than the Leafs. And um, it was the right trading partner. It was the team that drafted him. Obviously, still like him, and he's a penguin. These are the kind of trades that um, really blow up. You know, when we're trying to come up with fake trades and sometimes I'm, I react like, eh, I don't think that's really realistic. This is the kind of trade that's like, what, what does Pittsburgh get out of this? A third liner, but... Um, you know, it, it's, I mean, I, I assume Kapanen is going to be in that top six to start next year. He's going to be with Malkin or Crosby and that's why they made that move. Um, you know, it's been said many times, Pittsburgh just trying to keep their window to win open. And so they want to give Malkin and Crosby some good players to play with. You know, maybe he ends up on the third line like he did with Toronto, but I don't think you're giving up a first round pick plus 
for a third line winger. I think that's the design is to put him up there and maybe he hits. I, I like Kapanen as a player. Um, I think he's feisty. I think he's got a little offensive upside. He had a pretty good year. It just wasn't a fit in Toronto. They're so loaded with forwards and wingers. Um, he, he was capped. He was the third line winger on that team unless there were injuries. And that was that um, Pittsburgh. He might be a little bit more. So that's where their thinking is coming from. They can be a little bit more cavalier with, you know, giving up their first round picks. They already have to give up their first round pick next year to Minnesota. So they're not going to be, they don't have a first round pick for the next two years now. Um, that's how focused they are on this team and, and just trying to win. But Toronto, I mean, this is an absolute home run for them. I, I think they've been trying to trade Kaffinen for uh, some time now. They didn't need him. They didn't have to trade him, but they also didn't have to keep him. There are other wingers in that organization that can come up and, and play just fine on that on that third line. You know, Nick Robertson is probably the guy that's going to slot right in there next year, and you've got your Kaffinen replacement right away. You got a mid-first round pick, you got cap space, and those are the two biggest assets that the Leafs are getting. As, as little cap space as it is, just over $3 million, you're just trying to carve out a little bit more cap space with every trade that you're making to, you know, maybe get engaged in the UFA market. You know, you got some work to do to have enough room to sign a guy like Alex Petrangelo, but maybe it's not a guy like that. Maybe it's a second tier defenseman, or you use that cap space to trade other assets to get a defenseman. Maybe you use that first round pick you got from Pittsburgh uh, in another deal to try and get a defenseman. That's what this is all about. I don't think Toronto, uh, you know, when, when Kyle Dubas talks about this probably not being the only move he makes, I don't think we're going to be looking at more moves for forwards. I think all of this is going to be designed to improve that blue line. You've, you've got Tyson Berry and Cody CCR leaving. Um, you don't have enough in the system to come up to make them so much better that you're going to feel fine about that blue line after what happened to the team. Uh, this year. So you're just trying to get cap space, cap space, cap space. Uh, that's hugely important. And then I, I think this Philip Hollander guy, um, the prospect, the 20 year old center that they got, he doesn't sound like he's such a bad prospect either. Like who knows, maybe he hits, maybe he doesn't, but he comes from a hockey family. His dad played professionally in Sweden for years. He had a pretty good year in the Swedish elite league himself at just 20. He's a, he's a center, a, a pretty big guy, a power forward in the making. Um, so, I mean, if he hits and he ends up being an NHL or two, this trade's only going to look um, even bigger for the Maple Leafs. So I understand where Pittsburgh is coming from. Um, it's just a, a wild high price to pay um, for what Kapanen brings, I think. And, and Toronto comes out looking awesome. Yeah, it just feels like if you're Jim Rutherford and you say, I'll do that deal, but it's got to be our second rounder, the Leafs still go, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Yep. Sure. I mean, Toronto... I, I, Toronto would do this for the cap space. So yeah. for sure, second round pick, that makes sense. I think they use this first round pick for something else. Um, it's, it's, it's an asset I don't think that they expected to get for Kapanen. Um, I don't think they expected to have this. And now they do along with this extra cap space. And you know, while Pittsburgh is trying to win now, Toronto's window isn't probably as tight as Pittsburgh's. But they have to be pushing to win now, too. They, they shouldn't be sitting back and saying, ah, you know, we got this first round pick and we got some years to work with. Their window is a little bit bigger, but the urgency to win, especially for the GM, is probably the same as Pittsburgh. Because if Toronto doesn't win in the first round next year, you know, is Kyle Dubas still around? There's going to be questions asked about Brendan Shanahan sure. at that point, probably. So they're, 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 there's a, a big sense of urgency there, too. So 
Um, I'm excited for what comes next for Toronto because, you know, I'm not sold that they're going to trade William Nylander. Definitely not Mitch Marner. Um, but I think, you know, Andreas Janssen's probably on the table. You wonder about Freddie Anderson. I'd be shocked, but he's got a year left on his contract and the goalie market is so vast that sure, you know, if the right option comes along, maybe there's something there. But I think there's all sorts of options on the table. And if they can keep adding just a little bit of cap space every time they do something, um, that possibility that they do something massive on, on the defense that, you know, maybe moves Morgan, Morgan Riley to your number two defenseman instead of your number one exists for the Maple Leafs. Well, you said if this Kapanen trade was pitched to you as a fake trade, you would give it the thumbs down. I always know I'm on to something when I propose one and you reply with, oh, and that was the case <laughs> after the Habs went out on Friday uh, following the Calgary Flames. And I came uh, at you with a Johnny Gaudreau for Brendan Gallagher and Paul Byron. And the fact that you didn't instantly go, nah, I knew I was like, you know what? Maybe this is, uh, maybe we're cooking with something here. Now we don't have to tie these teams completely together because they are in different situations. And of course, I'm really just bringing this up as a way of transitioning to the fact that Johnny Gaudreau is, you know, someone we've talked about in this podcast and, you know, it is officially the headline in Calgary that, you know, someone seems to be headed out the door and his name has been the one for a couple of reasons. He has a couple years left on his contract at, I think, 6.7, a very palatable number for what he brings. I mentioned Gallagher and Byron because of what it seems like Calgary needs is a little more gumption, and, and we saw so much of that, and you always see that from Brendan Gallagher, who only has one year left on his contract. But let's deal with Calgary first. I mean, is it a foregone conclusion at this point that a mega person is moving out of that city, or do you think... I mean, Brad True Living is no fool. He doesn't want to sell low. How do you see things going here? I think something's happening. I, I would be shocked if Johnny Gaudreau is back with this team last year. And Eric Francis's uh, column early this week after Brad True Living talked, he noted that, you know, when True Living speaks to the media and he's asked about a player's struggles, he generally will defend that player. That's what his stance always is. And it's not that he threw Gaudreau under the bus, but he didn't completely defend him he acknowledged that some players needed to be better needed to do more uh play more to their strengths and that he really thinks the flame should still be playing right now um and the reason why they're not is there's a lot of reasons but that first line just not getting going again for the second year in a row is easily the biggest reason why they're they're not still playing and, and that they couldn't push past round one so you've got to change something and I don't think it's going to be Lindholm. It comes down to Monaghan or Gaudreau. And I just think it's it's a tough trade to make to move out a center uh, yeah. like Monaghan before giving him a shot with somebody else first um, to try and find some chemistry and, and go with that guy. Gaudreau is, you know, he's got a favorable contract. He's got the history of, you know, he's hit 99 points before. Yeah, he's been a fringe Art Ross guy. Absolutely. Um, and so maybe if he goes somewhere else, he can find that again. Um got two years left on his contract so if you're going to make that move you want to make it now and not a year from now when his price will will go far down any acquiring team gets him for two years so i would think the haul would be pretty good and whether that haul is all futures which you then try and flip or whether it's something that helps you immediately when the dust settles 
Calgary's going to be making these moves trying to get better for next season. They're not going to be taking a step back. I think ideally, if you move Goudreau, it is for somebody who's going to play with Monaghan um, and be, you know, have some high ceiling offensive upside there to him. Maybe you're doing it for depth. Um, but I think Goudreau is, is the guy who fits all of it. Like he, he could return you what you need and is the guy who has been underperforming the longest in the playoffs. And I think that's the guy who's got to go. But, you know, there are questions about Mark Giordano too. He's got a no trade clause and you would need to work around that. But, you know, he's 36 years old. Um, he's got two years left on his contract. Um, the, the, the difficulty there is already Calgary's got TJ Brody, Travis Hamanick, uh, Eric Gustafson, who they picked up at the trade deadline. Those guys are all UFAs uh, right now. Brody's probably gone. We'll see about Hamannick. So you've already got some restructuring to do on that blue line. So if you put Giordano into the trade pile, you're adding a little bit more uncertainty into that. Um, but maybe, you know, as Elliot Friedman reported on Saturday Night uh, Saturday Night, on Saturday Headlines. <laughs> big big uh, night for Elliot yeah, <laughs> on SNL. On, yeah, on Saturday Headlines that, you know, Oliver Ekman Larson might be available yeah. from the Arizona Coyotes. and That's juicy. That That's really juicy. There, there's all sorts of teams that can could use a guy like that, but maybe Calgary is the one. Like, if you are worried about your, and it's not that Giordano has to go out in that trade, but if you bring on Ekman Larson and now you've got the two of them, well, now you've got that bridge for when Giordano's play ultimately does fall off or he retires or whatever. Now you've got your new number one that, that's kind of there to carry the torch and you're not having to worry about a, a retool or, or how that transition is going to go. Um, you know, that there's just like, you're not trading Matthew Kachuk. I don't, like I said, I don't think it's, it's Lindholm who's going to go. And then everything else after that is, is depth. And I think depth that showed really well in these playoffs, like Dylan Dubé, 23 years old, 22 yeah, years that old. Third line. Awesome. The whole third line. Sam Bennett for the second playoff in a row was awesome in the playoffs. And, and you even saw some life from Milan Lucic there. So I think you're probably bringing those guys back even just for what they're, going to give you in the playoffs next year what you can expect there um i think they could use a little bit of an upgrade on the second line but these are all like there's no other trade chip on this team that is going to get you a return that is going to keep you going forward other than Gaudreau. like a guy in his prime like that he's he's just the most likely i don't see any way around it to be honest after two disappointing playoff performances in a row yeah it's funny how the conversation changed so quickly with calgary because early in the playoffs they obviously beat the jets and even early against dallas we were talking about you know I, like you said that third line was coming through it felt like hey maybe there is something here and then you know the way dallas came back on them it really flipped things the conversation flipped around montreal too uh big picture but from uh, bad to good, really, because of the way the Canadians showed in uh, the in the qualifying round versus Pittsburgh, and even a, in a series against Philadelphia, it went six games, and you could make a strong argument the Canadians certainly could have pushed to seven and maybe even one. Um, you know, Nick Suzuki, Jesperi Kotkaniemi, everyone saw that those two have really shown something up the middle. There is urgency there because we know Price and Weber are, um, you know, they are where they are, 33 and, and 35 price looks so good. And I want to zone in on that a little bit because everyone's saying, well, they have all this cap space, they have all these draft picks, they have to find a backup goalie. And I, I've been thinking about that a bit. And it's that's it sounds easy, but that's a tougher needle to thread than you realize at first blush because you are already spending 10.5, I think, or 10, I guess, on price. 
when they go out into the UFA goalie market, yeah, there are some guys available there, but the Canadians can't make the same pitch to those guys because other teams can say, come in here and, you know, we know we want to play a 35. And if you look great, you might play 55, you know, and they can throw probably more money at them just because Montreal's already devoting so much time to or so much money to uh, price at that position. So you have to find a goalie who is good enough that you can go, okay, we've checked that box. We've taken care of it. But at the same time, the guys who are at the top of that class, they're going to have better options. So I do wonder how that's going to shake out. I mean, is Cam Talbot, speaking of Calgary, is, is that a guy who you would say, you know, is the pitch of Cumbie Carey Price's backup, is that good enough for a guy like that? Or is even someone of that ilk going to say, well, I want a shot to know I'm number one? Because the Canadians also have to be able to go get a guy that still allows them to keep one arm around Price and go, don't worry, big fella, you know you're the guy. Yeah, Honestly, I think part of the pitch needs to be that we're not going to uh, we're not going to treat price the same way that we have to this point because I think one takeaway from all this has got to be that he's, price he can only rested. play he's got to play fifty five games yes. next year. He was rested and he was awesome in these playoffs, and so I think you've got to find ways to lessen his workload next year, fifty to fifty five games tops. Now you say that, and at the same time you realize that. They're like a fringe bubble playoff team. So if you're sitting price, whoever you put in, it can't just be an automatic loss. Like you've got to have somebody who's also very solid that you can rely on because you're still going to need all wins uh, in those games. I, I was wondering, you know, at this stage of his career, 35 years old, he'll be 36 at the end of December. If Montreal native Corey Crawford would at all be interested in going back and, and being a, you know, 25 to 30 game starter. But at his end of season avail, he said he thinks his strength is playing a lot of games and that he wants to win another cup in Chicago and all this stuff. Honestly, the only team that's going to give him a shot to play more than half of the games and like have that be part of the pitch is the Chicago Blackhawks. I don't think anybody else is. So if that's what he's committed to and will take less to stay in Chicago to do it, Montreal is just not an option. I mean, you wonder about you know, someone like Anton Kudobin, um, again, but he played half the games. Yeah, and, and there's another guy whose numbers the past couple of years, he's sitting there going, I, I want a chance to play as much as possible where I go. I don't want to know there's a hard ceiling on how many games I can get in, you know? Yeah, and, and so this is where Talbot is, is an interesting one in that, you know, he went from a backup in New York to a starter in Edmonton to a backup again in Calgary because it just didn't work out. He played less than 30 games this year, but he was so good in the second half down the stretch that he became Calgary's starter. Now, I don't think anybody's going to give him the keys next year. He's not going to be a starter um, again. I think it's likely that he ends up in a tandem somewhere, um, but Montreal is going to, provide an, an interesting one because you again it should be part of the pitch we'll see but you should be able to reliably get like 30 to maybe 35 starts there next year but probably closer to 30 and hopefully Talbot is is good with that knowing that with a guy like him playing like he can you're a playoff team it's just that you're not going to get any playoff games once you get there it's going to be all price so that that is the tough like how enticing is that to a guy like cam talbot who could find somewhere else like you know with what's going on in vegas if they keep robin laner and they trade mark andre Fleury somewhere does vegas become an interesting landing spot for a guy like talbot who would join laner 
a guy who has been a tandem for the last couple of years, and maybe you don't want to give him 55 to 60 games. So that's more of an even split. And there's always the possibility that, you know, Laner hits a bad stretch or gets injured or something like that. And now you're the starter that even exists in Vegas and that doesn't exist in Montreal. So it is going to be hard. I'm actually right now, um, I'm about halfway through and I haven't got to the backup guys yet, but I'm, um, I'm working through different tiers of goalies who are available this year from the starters who are UFAs to the backups, the tandem options and all the guys that could be available via trade. Um, would you be interested in a Craig Anderson for a role like that? Would Craig Anderson be interested in that? I mean, like he's not, I, I don't know if he's enough of a sure thing. His save percentage yeah. has been around 900 for three years now, granted behind an Ottawa team that wasn't so great. I mean, would you feel better with him than Charlie Lindgren? I, I think that's a little bit iffy, but those are the kinds of guys we're talking about, right? Like the guys who know they're not going to be starters that are just kind of, they're fine and they could catch a hot stretch and they, and they have the veteran know-how to kind of work through these things. But I don't know how great you would feel about having Anderson come in. No, and the problem is, once you've kind of hitched your wagon to someone, if it doesn't work, I mean, yeah, okay, I guess you can go out and make a trade once the season has started, but I kind of feel like this is a decision that gets made in the first couple days of free agency, and it better be the right one because you don't find out until two and a half months into the season when the guys had 12 starts and you're going, okay, he's just not getting it done. Well, now we're hosed again, right? So yep. um, we will see. Like I said, I feel like that's just a little a little tougher needle to thread than it sounds like for the Habs. Lots of intrigue for sure for uh, these Canadian teams heading into the offseason, but lots of playoff hockey to go before we get there. All right. Thanks so much for listening today. Thanks to Ian McIntyre for joining us and bringing us up to speed on the Canucks. Thanks to our producers, Mike DeSoni and Michael Mares. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Rory Boylan. Check back next week for more Glass Ryland hockey action on Tape to Tape. 